blessing to us. Well, today, if you look around the room here, you don't look around necessarily and think this way, but here's, here's a reality. This room is filled with a bunch of contrasts when it comes to life. People living in similar categories, people who love God equally, people who have set their hope in God for their future life here and an eternal life. But if you looked at the categories of life here, you might find some even confusing contrast as to how can this person's life be this way and God be God and how can this person's life in a similar category be very different and God still be God in their life. If you looked around today here, you'd find people whose story about finding their bride and getting married. We have a couple that's found that pathway to walk on. There's people here who, who would say, yeah, I was 21 when I got married and, and God has been so wonderful to us and blessed us. And, and then there'd be individuals here who are 41 or 51 and they had hoped to have been married and they're still, they're still not married. And that, that looks like it may not even happen perhaps for some and they prayed and they hoped in God and, and yet that's how their life has panned out. There'd be some couples here who God has blessed in marriage. They've been married for many, many years. They're growing old together, 30 years, 40 years of marriage. We've got folks married longer than that here. And then just across the aisle, perhaps, there'd be a widow sitting who lost their spouse when their spouse was in their 40s or in their 50s or in their 60s and they have traveled the rest of the way alone and yet both have prayed and hoped in God and it's just a very different contrast. There are parents here today who raise their children to love God, to know God, They brought them to church faithfully. They brought them to VBS as they prayed over their kids. They've interacted with their children over the life issues. They've read scripture, hoped in God together. And some of them have children who now the next generation of their families here, raising kids, doing the same, loving God. There's some here this morning whose children went on to become pastors and serve in the church in that kind of a capacity. And then, and then maybe right down the pew from them, right down your aisle from them, would be somebody who did all those things, and yet they're here this morning in the anguish of wayward children. Children who don't have a heart to pursue God and know God. Who have perhaps buried their life in, in problems and difficulties and heartache has been the story that they have experienced. And, and, and there are some parents here who their own story has experienced both. They've got children in both categories. And yet all those parents looked to God, they hoped in God, they prayed that God would do something amazing, miraculous at times in their kids' lives. And there's quite a contrast of different experience. There's some people here this morning who you've experienced God intervene in the physical well-being of your body. You were diagnosed with something years ago. You had something as a child that that could have taken your life 
or been with you to this day. And God intervened, stepped in, and, and that's not the condition for you. You have lived free from that. You can look back 20 years ago, 30 years ago, when the last of the symptoms were there. And seated near you is somebody who has answered multiple altar calls to come forward to receive healing for a debilitating condition that continues in their life to this day. And it's still there. And they have hoped and asked for God to make a difference. Listen, there's, there's contrasts in this room that are really hard to explain, aren't they? There's things that have occurred in each of our lives. And you don't have to be, be an older person, be a young person here today. There are some of you here that you didn't make the team. You didn't, you didn't get picked for the part and you had your hopes set on that. And then, then there's somebody near you that did make the team, get picked for the parts. And, and you're trusting God, they're trusting God. Why, why is there different favor upon different people's lives? Why this contrast? Well, you know, when we open up here and Jason's taking us through Acts 12, I couldn't pass this up. I thought this is a, a life lesson too rich to move into Acts 13. Listen, we're always leaving stuff behind as we move through the book of Acts or any scripture. But there are some contrasts. There's a contrast in particular here I think teaches us deeply because we live our lives living out the script of whoever it is that God has made you to be. But you can't avoid this. Looking across the way, looking across the room and comparing your script to that person's script. Why is their life that way? Why did it work out that way for them? Because it didn't work out that way for me. And yet I hoped, I hoped in God. I prayed. I sought God. Is, did I do something wrong? Did I, did I fall short? Are they just better than me? Is, is God more favorably disposed to them because, because of what? About their life that's not in my life? See, in these moments, and this is where we live, in these moments... We, we are called on to interpret life. You're going to interpret your life. You're going to interpret the script that's been in your life in these moments. And so I want to do two things, and I'm going to come back to that thought. I want to answer two questions from Acts chapter 12. One is, how do you interpret life? When you look at your life and unavoidably compare it to others, how do you interpret your life? All right, I'll come back to that one. The one I want to start with is the second one. How do you persevere in prayer when your life says, don't bother? Your life experience says, why bother calling out to God? Why bother depending upon God? Why bother believing God for something big? Why bother? The experience that I've had so far is, it just doesn't seem to make any difference in my life. Well, let's learn from James and Peter in Acts chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. About that time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest 
prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel, that what was being done by the angel was real. But he thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And he went out and went along one street and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Father, this word is your hand-picked, inspired record of things that give us insight into who you are, how we relate to you, what you've done in people's lives in the past that inform what you might do with us today. And so, Lord, we, we need insight, and you've given us insight in these passages. So, God, help us today to receive. Lord, help many today here who the script of life has built in discouragement for them. And they're trying to figure out how, how do I keep going? How do I hope and trust in God? Things just haven't turned out the way I wanted. Well, would you speak into our hearts today in Jesus name? Amen. Well, let me talk first about the puzzling practice of persistent prayer. Acts 12, verse 5 says, So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. I think one of the hardest things for us to do as Christians is pray. I don't don't know if there are too many things in all the Christian life that rival prayer in its difficulty. And in all, I bet every one of us could stand, we could form a line at the microphone today of one person after another who would come up and say, you know, I've had some seasons where, you know, prayer has gone well and I've, you know, I've gotten with God and I've experienced God and, and, you know, and then times when it's waned, I just, you know, I, I, I don't pray, I don't pursue the Lord the way I know I need to. And there's a lot of regret and concern. It, it's not an easy thing to pray. And, and then when you live life, there are these built in insurmountable issues that happen in life that make us hesitate about praying or make us just neglect it and not feel like it's that big of an issue. Well, when we read Acts chapter 12, there's this prayer meeting taking place, right? Get all the way down to verse 12 and John Mark's mother's home. Believers have gathered. I, I, I would suspect Peter knew that they'd be there. That probably was a common gathering place, perhaps common prayer meeting was taking place and Peter knew the day that he was released, that's where folks would be. They'd be together praying. But people miss prayer meetings. You know, I don't know, maybe you're like that. 
You miss prayer meetings. I mean, just, just don't make them, you know, just don't, don't show up for prayer, right? There are reasons here to miss this prayer meeting and you've got yours, right? You've got your reasons, but there's lots of opportunities just to get together for prayer happening around here. Uh, some folks have just felt a burden from God to, to begin meetings and, you know, they'll just let us know, hey, I'm gathering some folks for prayer on these particular days or these particular nights. If you wanted to meet together with other believers to pray about significant things in your life or in the kingdom of God, uh, there was a meeting this morning at 8 o'clock. Right? Anybody could have been there. There's a meeting on Tuesday mornings where folks gather in the foyer on Tuesday mornings and, and pray together. Uh, there are meetings that, you know, Sid's been, been having a burden to call folks together to pray for power power in our lives, right? So if anybody's here this morning, you're thinking, you know what? I could use some power. I could use some stuff happening at a greater, more powerful level in my life. Yeah, that's me. All right, well, there's, there's opportunities there. Uh, there was a gathering for men on Friday morning. It happens the, the first Friday, I believe, of every month. Men gather here on Friday mornings at 6.30 to pray together. So there's all kinds of opportunities and more beyond that for us to pray together. But we don't make those meetings a lot of times, right? So, so when you look in your own life and say, okay, what would be some of my reasons for not going to a prayer meeting? Not putting God to the task of responding to my prayers. What, I don't know. What's keeping us from that as individuals? Well, I'm just going to draw from book of Acts here a couple of thoughts as to what would be tempting for somebody here just to not make that prayer meeting. First one would be recent unanswered prayer. This incredible prayer meeting taking place to rescue Peter. Churches come together, putting all its attention on a, on a huge need, a significant leader in the church. One that God has used to give direction and affect people's lives is now been put in jail and is being threatened with death. And the church is going to rally together and come and pray some big prayers for God to intervene in that situation. The only problem is they've already done that. I'm willing to bet everything. Recently. For another important leader. Influential person in the body of Christ. Shaping and forming the initial stages and walk of this church on earth. His name was James. Verse one, about that time, Herod, the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John with the sword. James. James of Peter, James and John, James. I mean, you got the 12 of all the believers. You got the 12. Then you got the three. I mean, they were, they were tight. They, they're the Mount of Transfiguration guys. They're the guys that get special exposure to Jesus, even that the rest of the 12 don't get. James is taken into jail by Herod, who has a reputation for the way in which he's going to deal with people. Now, it's been a little while since we've faced 
death in the book of Acts. It's probably been seven or eight years since they recorded activity. If somebody's been killed for their faith, that was Stephen. This is the first time one of the 12 has been taken captive. Remember the, the dispersion took place, the persecution arose, and everybody fled for the hills? Except the apostles. They stayed in Jerusalem. There, were, there was something going on that allowed them to feel like, hey, we can stay. Everybody else, get out, but we're going to stay. But suddenly now, that situation has changed, and James is in jail, being threatened by this king with the sword. Now, can you imagine people have gathered together and prayed for this man? Probably, probably in John Mark's mother's home. Probably many of the same people gathered for Peter, gathered for James. Can you imagine what that meeting sounded like as they cried out to God and they considered, Lord, don't let James die. And they had reasons. They had good reasons. I believe in prayer, you're supposed to argue with God. Not that God's opposed to things, but I think it, it forms in us the strategies of God in our own hearts to present them back to God. So these guys were arguing with God. And James is going to end up dead anyway. They're going to ask, and he's going to be dead anyway. Derek Thomas says, the death of James was the only recorded death of one of the 12 disciples in scripture. James was still a young man, possibly in his 30s. Right? Can you imagine, guys, we have gathered together to pray for Jeff, whose life is being threatened. Hostile forces, a sudden bout with some disease. We are gathering together to pray for Jeff. That's what's happening here. Full of passion and zeal. His usefulness as a disciple had only just begun. What, after all, had been the point of being chosen as a disciple only to be cast aside at this stage of the church's life? It would not be difficult to imagine how James, like his brother John, could have traveled to some city and spent 40 or 50 years preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God. He could have been useful as a missionary in the expansion of the church into Asia Minor and beyond. There are many ways in which the church could have tapped into his usefulness. In this light, his death seems to be such a waste. If you were in that meeting and you were praying for James, I would have used that phrase before the throne of God. God, it would be such a waste for James to not continue in usefulness for the kingdom of God. A pointless act of cruelty showing either that God is not in control or that he does not much care. All right, can you pause for a second? Whatever script you're comparing yourself to somebody else's, that's probably one of your multiple choice options, right? Your script is where it is because God can't change it. Or... Somehow along the way, and you probably don't use these words, but you f- use these feelings. God doesn't care. God has lost sight of me and where I am. Either way, drawing these conclusions must surely have been a temptation for the members of the church in Jerusalem, spiraling them into chaotic, a chaotic future of paranoia and flight. 
That such was not the case signals that these early Christians drew an altogether different interpretation, one that placed God firmly in control, even if they were as yet unable to discern the wisdom that shaped it. Listen, it is, it is, it is difficult to persevere in prayer, to show up at the next prayer meeting, to join hands with others, to raise your voices, to fill your heart with faith, to cry out to God when you have just come from what looks like failed prayer. Just prayed for James. We're getting together to pray for Peter now in the same condition. James is dead. What good is that? If you're close to James, if this thing really wrung you out, and you see and appreciate his ministry and care in your own life. And now you've got to transfer that same faith. You've got to come pray those prayers again for Peter? Really? Listen, it's very hard to recover from those moments in our lives. I have personally, and this is a, probably what the dark hours of being a pastor feel like is when you walk with people through unexplainable tragedies. You, you can't give a good answer for why this happened. I unavoidably studying this could not help but think about some of those chapters for us as a church. As we walk with people who suddenly were facing the sword of life was upon them. And we came together to pray and call out to God and believe that God would do something miraculous. I began to type in the name Brenda Gresset. As tears fell on my keyboard. I'm not looking at you, dude. <laughs> this church came together and prayed. Believe God would intervene miraculously. Brenda Gressett was a woman in her 40s, married with two children. I don't even think Lisa was a teenager yet. And she was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And it went through her body fiercely. And there was every kind of prayer meeting you can imagine. I don't know what these guys sounded like praying for Peter, but I think we could have given them a run for their money. And Brenda died. And it rocked people. Some of you here were here and you were rocked by what happened with Brenda. How do you, how do you pray again for a situation like that? How do you touch the next person's life who's in that kind of a category as a church? How do you, how do you come and pray for that? 
This turns your world upside down. It turns your prayer life upside down. But there's something in this story here. James is dead. But Peter, we have an opportunity to pray for. And the church rallies again and comes together again with hearts full of faith and earnestly, it says, earnestly crying out to God yet again. You know, I want to make a case for what I'm going to call Acts 12 Christians. There's a group of churches who have come together under the banner of Acts 29. They're Acts 29 churches. You know, if you read the book of Acts, you'll know that it stops in Acts 28. Um, They're not aware of that, but, um, well, you know, Acts 29, it's a kind of a cool idea. It's like, hey, the mission continues. What God was doing in the book of Acts is not over. The mission continues. We're the Acts 29 group of Christians who continue this mission upon the earth. Well, I want to make a case for Acts chapter 12 Christians. Acts 12 Christians. Here, I think I'll put this in your outline. And Acts 12 Christians are Christians who have a view of God that allows them to travel down the James dead end and the Peter freeway. And see that God is at work in both places. Right? James is a dead end. You know, drive down that road. You're going to pray. You're going to spend your faith. You're going to cry out to God. You're going to muster everything in you to believe. And you're going to get to the end of that road. And James is dead. And then on this other road, the church will travel down. Same people will travel down this road. And Peter will be set free. And somehow we have to be able to do both. These guys did both. The church has to be able to stand in a moment where God doesn't intrude into that situation and yet still believe that God is a God who intrudes in this world. The church has to be able to stand in a moment, pray and believe that God does miracles, but when he doesn't do a miracle, still be able to turn around and pray that God does miracles cannot become a church that because God didn't intrude this way that we never look for God to intrude again that way. Cannot become that way. If I, if I needed a commentary on understanding moments like this, I, I, would, I would look to Hebrews chapter 11. The interesting variety of ways that faith is experienced. Real, genuine, godly Powerful faith is experienced in that chapter, right? It's the Hall of Faith chapter. If you want some cool stories about faith, you go to chapter 11. In it, you will see an interesting mix of loud faith, supernatural intervention faith, quiet, providential guidance faith, and quizzical, puzzling neglect And all of them will be called faith. Hebrews 11, verse 11 says, By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, well past the age, she was 75 years old. And yet she received, God intruded into a 75-year-old woman's body and miraculously gave her the ability to do what she couldn't do. She didn't have that ability, but God intruded and gave it to her. That's faith. 
Hebrews 11, verse 29. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as if on dry land. Right? You get your back against the, the Red Sea and, and here comes the enemy. Whatever circumstance you want to color that in is coming against you and you got nowhere to go and God steps in and does what nobody can explain and no one can script and gets you out of that jam. That's faith. Right? We pray for Red Sea deliverances. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Because that's what faith calls out for. Hebrews 11, verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms. They enforced justice, obtained promises. Stop the mouths of lions, right? They're just miracle after miracle, intervention after intervention. Quench the power of fire. Escape the edge of the sword. We know anybody who did that? All right, the question is, is, is Hebrews 11 a commentary on Acts 12? Or is Acts 12 just supplying the data for Hebrews 11 here? Escape the edge of the sword. Who was that? That's Peter. The same sword that took James' life, he escaped the edge of the sword. Were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. I mean, they're just praying for people to be healed. These were folks who had gone beyond healing. These guys are dead. Lazarus was dead when those women received him back. The widow of Nain with her dead son in a progression one day meets the son of God and receives back into her life her only son. It wasn't just healing, that was death. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered. I can just look, this is, this is Hebrews chapter 11. This is a commentary on faith and how we live out faith, and how we pray, and how we engage, and how we interpret life, right? Verse 33, look there. These are those who through faith conquered. Verse 36, others suffered. Those conquered, others suffered. In contrast, in the same passage, some conquered and did stuff that we sit back, write a book about that. Unbelievable. Peter, write a book about the day the angel came. And showed up in your life. And God did incredible, amazing things. Others suffered. James. Others suffered mocking and flogging. And even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. And what? They were killed with the sword. I don't know that Hebrews 11 doesn't exactly have James in mind here. Previously exactly had Peter in mind. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, please hold on, underline that, circle it, paint it, do something with it because you're going to need to use it a little bit later when we try to figure out how to interpret our own lives. All these, 
though commended through their faith. All of these were commended through their faith. How many of them were? Everybody was. The ones who conquered were commended through their faith. And the ones who didn't escape the sword were commended through their faith. They did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us. Which is an interesting thing, and I can't unpack this. But Peter escapes the sword. Peter miraculously gets freed from this jail cell. The answer to prayer that just pumps the church up, makes us excited. Let's come back together and pray again. But yet Peter didn't receive what this verse is talking about. He didn't receive it. God intervened in his life, but God had something better even for Peter. Now, it's obviously, for, we look at James and we say, huh, well, James definitely didn't receive it, dude. <laughs> Received a sword through his neck. But according to this, God had something better for both. And they were commended for their faith, a faith that was operating in the better realm of God. That's the hard part, isn't it? There's this better realm of God that God is operating in. And our faith takes us into that. We pray into that realm. John Bloom wrote an interesting article. He said, when the angel didn't come. He says, Jesus allowed the sword to fall on James as intentionally as he opened Peter's prison door. So the death of James is as crucial for us to remember as the rescue of Peter. Why did God let James die? This question is relevant because at some point, most of us will find ourselves facing death, pleading for deliverance and not receiving what we think we are asking for. You need to read that again. Isn't that true? All right. Just everybody look in your rearview mirror for a second. Look in your rearview mirror. You've been praying for stuff. You've got a rearview mirror. You've got a life full of prayers for things. How many of those things feel like a James outcome and how many of them feel like a Peter outcome? You look back in your rearview mirror. I would suspect that if this is the amount of times you prayed, asked God to intervene and do something incredible, and change the course of future history. And here's James and here's Peter. I would... I'd be willing to guess most of us would say it looks like this. There's a lot more James outcomes than there are Peter outcomes. Kind of hard to explain. It points to a difficult lesson that all of Jesus' disciples must learn. Jesus often has different priorities than we do. What may feel desperately urgent to us may not be urgent to him, at least not in the same way. Remember, God is up to something better, Hebrews says. There is something better in God that causes sometimes James to lose his head. It's hard to interpret that event, isn't it? Do you think the church celebrated James's head coming off the same way it celebrated Peter coming and knocking on the door? Do you think when he showed up, they just all rallied with the same kind of heart cry? Whoo! Another answered prayer. Do you think they felt like James situation ended well? You got to interpret life here, don't you? They had to interpret life. 
James is dead. Peter is rescued. That one was done right somehow. Something wrong over here, though. Derek Thomas says, no matter what the event may be, God has planned and executed it perfectly. God does not make mistakes. There are no errors in the unfolding of his purposes for us. Do right? you remember this passage earlier in Acts chapter 4, verse 24? When they heard it, they lifted their voices. This is a great prayer meeting of Acts chapter 4. This great boldness given to them. They lifted their voices together to God and said in prayer, Sovereign Lord, the ruler over everything in this world, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the, and the people's plot in vain? What's he talking about there? Well, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And he says it was vain. It was a waste of their time because God was up to something. And it didn't matter what they were up to because God was up to something. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, different Herod, and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. I can think that kind of just includes everybody. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That's how it went down. When Jesus Christ was bleeding on the cross, having been beaten and tortured and nailed to that place and died in a horrible setting amongst criminals, the temptation would have been to think Herod and the Gentiles succeeded. They succeeded. But this verse says all of their efforts were in vain because all they did was fulfill God's plan. That's all they did. Question. Did the grandson of this Herod, who put James to death by the sword, did he succeed? And then he turned around and failed with Peter. He succeeded with James, but he failed with Peter. Is that right? Or is God still sovereignly reigning and ruling over James and Peter in the same way that he was sovereignly reigning and ruling over Jesus Christ? And what was happening in in James' life and in Peter's life was under God's control at every moment. Which brings us to the second reason why not, why why bother to pray? Come on, Keith, just trace that thought out a little bit. If God is in control of everything, really everything, well, then everything's going to happen according to his plan. You just read it from the Bible, man. So you're having a prayer meeting. Why show up? Why come pray? Because God's going to do what God's going to do anyway. Right? So just from these passages, there's reason number two. Reason number one not to pray, not to gather with others to pray, is recent appearance of unanswered prayer. It didn't work then. Why should I pray again? Oh, and by the way, if God's in control of everything, why does it matter if I pray anyway? Yet in Acts chapter 12, they didn't, they, didn't just, they didn't just have a prayer meeting. It says they prayed earnestly. They stretched out. It's the same word describing Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. So it's not casual prayer. 
These guys intensely gathered and called on God and believed something big. That he would do something amazing. Charles Spurgeon, the message called the special prayer meeting, preached in 1875. He said, they believed in God, that he would do wonders. They believed in prayer, that it had an influence with God, and that the Lord did listen to the believing petitions of his servants. Oh, let it never be insinuated in the Christian church that prayer is a good thing and a useful exercise to ourselves but that it would be superstition to suppose that it affects the mind of God. Right? You ever have somebody tell you that? Listen, prayer is really good for us. You know, preachers, you know, sound like they're more spiritual than the Bible. Listen, God doesn't need prayer, buddy. God doesn't need prayer. You need prayer. Have you ever heard that? I probably said that. <laughs> but what it, it introduces this idea that, that your involvement in prayer is meaningless. It's a waste of time. It's good for you. It's therapeutic. Makes you start thinking things out the way God thinks them out. Puts you in a place near God. You got to pray. You got to get close to God. That's good for you. But it presents this idea that it has no effect on God. It has no effect on anything. It's just therapeutic for you. I love Spurgeon's messing with that. He says, they must think us devoid of reason. If they imagine that we shall be able to keep up prayer as a pious exercise if we once concede that it can have no result with God. Let me just tell you something. The moment you start believing that your prayer doesn't mean anything to God, it doesn't have an impact on anything going on around you, you're done. Matter of fact, it may be, come on, be honest. You don't have to raise your hand, but in your heart, it may be why you don't show up for prayer meetings. Somewhere along the line, you stop believing that your prayers had any influence on the outcome, on people's lives, on whether they would respond, on whether they would be spared, on whether they would be healed, on whether the future course of events would go this way or that way. You've just given up on believing that. So personally, why pray? And then corporately come together, have a prayer meeting like this? Why, why do that? Spurgeon says, we maintain prayer to be the most potent and unfailing force beneath the skies. Prayer moves that arm which moves all things else. And I'm going to join Mr. Spurgeon in believing that. I'm going to be honest with you and tell you that I have many nights in my life as a believer where I have had to wrestle myself into agreeing with that. And I have just flat come right out and told God, you know, not quite thinking of James situation, but coming out of situations that looked like they failed and failed and failed. And we prayed and prayed and prayed and failed and prayed and failed and prayed and failed. And then there's another situation and you stand there and you go, okay, God, what, what do you want me to do with this? You, you want me to pray again about this? God, you're going to have to do something here in the realm of prayer if you want me to keep praying about stuff like this. But yet in Acts chapter 12, that's exactly what they do. They are informed by something in God that's bigger than just interpreting life's circumstances. Let me just give you a quick look, two little things for your prayer toolbox, and then I'm going to go back to how to interpret life and we'll stop. 
insight number one for your prayer toolbox. Because you, you got a prayer toolbox. I hope you do. If you don't, you probably don't pray much. Because if you're going to pray, you're going to need tools. You're going to need to get reinvigorated and, and, and get refreshed and get new thoughts and bring them to prayer. You just can't keep praying like you did two days after you got saved. If that's the case, I guarantee you, you don't have a prayer life. You've quit a long time ago. So here are a couple of helpful thoughts from this passage for the prayer toolbox. First, prayer engages unseen resources. Right? When the church prayed, out of nowhere comes an angel who goes behind the scenes, shows up in this piercing light, undoes, wakes Peter up, undoes the chains, opens doors, and sets the guy free. Where did this guy come from? Well, it's a resource that was unseen. It's God providing. You look in Acts chapter 5. God did that before. They were in jail. God sent an angel. I read in Hebrews chapter 1. I read about these ministering spirits, these angels that are sent forth to minister on behalf of those who will inherit salvation. Did, did you stop believing Acts chapter 12? Did you stop believing that the Bible actually says when the church gathers to prayer... I don't necessarily know we always understand this or get a chance to even see it in review, but there's this dispatchment that's taking place where God is sending forth ministering spirits into people's lives to do in their lives miraculously what they need. Did you know that? Do you have that in your toolbox? The thought that I climb into my prayer closet with God, I join other believers in prayer. Man, there's, there's somebody on assignment being sent from heaven down to that situation to break in and do something over there. That's Acts chapter 12. Let's not, let's not give up on that. There's no reason to. And then con- consider earnest prayer. Not, you know, you guys know the difference between earnest prayer and just every day, any kind of lackadaisical, got a minute prayer. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm just saying it's wrong for this situation. There are moments where, hey, you want to hoist up a prayer at the red light. That's cool. Great. Commune with God. Say something in that moment. You got a moment in the shower. All right. All right. But this isn't that. This is a different kind of prayer. This is a prayer that reaches a little more deeply into your soul. This is the prayer that's a little more risky for you to pray. This is the kind of prayer that I'm praying at at such the edge here that if this doesn't happen, I'm going to end up with some real hard questions for God at the end. That's where I'm going to be on this. And that's okay. That's real life, but that's real prayer. Spurgeon says, continually, therefore, the people of God pleaded at his mercy seat. Relays of petitioners appeared before the throne, right? They just kept praying. There was a new team coming in praying and a new team coming in and praying. Some mercies are not given to us except in answer to importunate prayer. This insistent, continually coming prayer. There are blessings which, like ripe fruit, drop into your hand the moment you touch the bow. But there are others which require you to shake the tree again and again until you make it rock with the vehemence of your exercise, for then only will the fruit fall down. My brethren, we must cultivate importunity in prayer. Spurgeon is a man who led the charge in understanding the sovereignty of God. And yet, he is able to see that there's a real place of prayer in a real way affecting a real God and affecting the outcome of real events that God sovereignly rules over. I can't explain all that to you. I'm just called to obey. God calls us to pray. 
to pray in tough places. Listen, I don't want to be a Christian who the only fruit I'm ever picking up and eating is the stuff that falls off the tree by itself. You know, the really, really easy stuff that anybody who's never even read the Bible just it's like something from God just keeps falling into their life. And, oh, God is so good. Boom, falling in. A, oh, so grateful for God. And it just falls into their life. It's easy just to devolve into being that lazy kind of Christian. This was not a moment for lazy Christians. This was an earnest moment to lay hold of God and a call upon God. Even after James was beheaded, that's how they prayed. Now, let me, let me just give you a quick thought here on question number one. How do you interpret your life in light of Acts chapter 12? You've got the, the James dead end and the Peter freeway to travel on. If you find yourself on James dead end rather than Peter freeway, be careful how you interpret your life in that moment. Right, question. Did James get the short end of the deal? Because the church forgot to pray. Church forgot. They just, they just forgot to pray. God didn't intervene with James. James goes to the sword because those around him fell short. Something fell short in James's life. Listen, when you, when you go to compare your script with others, do you do that to yourself? Well, they're on the Peter Freeway. I'm at the James dead end because I'm just falling short. See, that's, that's why. I just neglected something. I didn't do something that I needed to do. And had I done it, I'd be on the Peter Freeway like that couple over there. We'd be on Peter Freeway, honey. You and I. Driving in a convertible. But instead, here we are, broke down an old Mazda. James dead end. And that's where we are in life, babe. Must be, we, we just don't pray enough. That's what it is. We don't, they probably pray. We don't pray enough. Is that why James lost his head? How about this? James got the short end of the deal because Peter was being more faithful. That's probably what it was. Peter, Peter preached better. Peter's doctrine was more accurate than James. James was starting to drift a little bit, I bet. Probably, I don't know. Just making this up, but. But Peter, nah, Peter, Peter preached the pure gospel. James was. So now you have a different principle operating. The more deserving principle. Peter was more deserving. Peter's traveling down the Peter freeway and James is dead because Peter was more deserving somehow. Right? So if you're struggling in your marriage and you look at somebody else and their marriage is doing great, what? They must be doing something more deserving than you, right? Look at those parents over there. They, they must be more deserving than you. Listen, that, that's an easy thought to think until you move in with people and live with them. We can install hidden cameras in everybody's life and just on a regular basis on Sunday morning, just, oh, this morning... Ray, we're going to show yours this morning. Ray, you're the guy. Here we go. Let's watch Ray this week. Uh, can you, could you quickly realize that there'd be everybody here, probably stop attending, but uh, everybody here to be quickly realizing, wow, 
they're not too much different than us. They're really similar. He's like this too. And and you'd come up with stuff like that. So you you can't read that. Well, you know, Peter, Peter's more deserving. How about getting really creative? Why did James get the short end and Peter got the great end here? Here you go. Let's get really spiritual here. There's two people dead in Acts chapter 12. Only two. James and Herod. I don't know. I'm just saying, you know, Acts 12 opens with James, closes with Herod. Jason explained to us pretty clearly why Herod was dead. He was in it for his own glory. You know, you wonder about James, you know, significant leader, Peter, James, John. I don't know, probably went to his head. A little pride issue there in James's life. Probably causing God to you know, take him out early. Go ahead, get rid of this guy. He's going to his head. He's Peter, James, and John. He's the number two guy. Peter obviously didn't have those kind of pride issues, but James did. So he's dead. Herod's dead. That's, you know, that, that, this principle I call the guilty by association with a recently read passage principle. <laughs> you know? You look at your life and you happen to pick the Bible up in proximity and you start reading this and you go, see, see, honey, I am Jeremiah. You know, it's like, no, you just accidentally read Jeremiah while you were going through that. Don't, don't do that. This is not inspired for you. It's inspired for Jeremiah. Be careful how you handle it. So don't get creative with the Bible in a weird way here. Right? It, 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 it may not have anything to do with why your situation is that way. But you do have to interpret the moments when it feels like James's head just came off in my life. I'm living on the James dead end. And, and it's, it is hard. There's nothing in me that wants to say it's good for James to have his head cut off. There's nothing in me that wants to say that. If they're praying, do you really think that there was a whole section of people in the prayer meeting go, oh, Lord, hasten. Hasten the sword. Yes, God, let the blood flow down James's chest with his head off. Does anybody pray in that way? I seriously doubt it. They were praying that the man would be spared. Because being spared from stuff like that is what we understand is good. Just is. Having your head cut off and being separated in death, I, I can't call that good. So I'm not praying for that. And then it happens to him anyway. And careful that you don't put on your kind of Google good glasses and interpret life in that moment and and kind of start sounding like Job's counselors. Well, James, reason this happened to you. I mean, you you understand Job's counselors didn't do a good job of interpreting life, did they? They had no knowledge of Job Job chapter one. No knowledge. They had not been behind the screen. Like we get to go behind the screen and figure out God is at work in some unique way in Job's situation that's going to get revealed in like Job 42. And and you and I are interpreting life sometimes with with that kind of data. So, where's Eric? Eric, go ahead and come back up here. So go go back into your life categories for a second. Why, Why is your script the way it is? Right, get real here. Wives, you, you're, you're married to a man who is a faithful man. He is a hardworking man. He is a diligent 
go to work every day. This man's not a slouch. But you get to the end of the month, every month, trying to figure out how on earth are we going to get to the end of the month every month. You barely get by every month. And you lift your eyes and you look across the room. And there's somebody else over there. Their script is like the Peter Freeway. It's just God's just blessing them. Look, they got, they got another new car, honey. <laughs> How great is that? You know, huh? maybe they could give us their old one because uh, you're just barely getting by. How do you interpret that? Are they doing something right and you're doing something wrong? Is that your automatic default here? You're raising kids. And you're having a totally different experience from somebody else. Somebody else who loved God and they raised their kids and they prayed for them and they taught them the Bible and they took them to VBS and they, they did all the things they needed to do as parents and your script goes this way and their script goes that way and you sit. Now, if you're on the Peter Freeway, you don't ask these questions. But if you're on the James dead end as a parent here this morning and you're looking across the room, I guarantee you, one, would, would you like to see highlight clips of home life of the kids that you think, wow, wow, they have children that walk on water. <laughs> what are we doing wrong that our kids don't walk on water like theirs? But listen, I know that's what we do. Our script feels different than somebody else's script. Can, can you just learn something here? Listen, I'm not trying to say that there's no human involvement in any of these things. But I'm just trying to say that that's not all there is. The prevailing mercy of God and the favor of God on our lives has got to be in the equation somewhere. I met a woman the other day. She had an interesting story. She turned out she was a believer. And we started talking. She started telling me about her kids. She had one kid as a teenager, just rebellious as all get out. She had a daughter who was just as compliant as could be. Now they're older. They're in their late 30s. The rebellious teenage boy is now a pastor. The compliant young girl wants nothing to do with God. And she's now, as an adult child, she's in anguish for this child while she was in anguish for the other one. And raised by the same parents sure similar thoughts and influence in their lives one james dead end one peter freeway and how how you doing interpreting your life it's not easy but can you please take this with you because you will torture yourself reading into other people's scripts things that one you don't have the whole story so be careful that you're doing that anyway but secondly when we come to the bible God's better way in our lives sometimes looks like James gets his head taken off while Peter gets to keep going. And God is Lord over them both. and He is faithfully involved in both of those situations. So let's, let's stand up together. Let's pray together.
just takes a minute to read this account in Acts chapter 12. And in reading it, we escape all the weight and emotion of James' family, close friends, partners in ministry, who suddenly, James is dead. But Lord, there are there are insights here. These folks lived their life around you in such a way that they, they were they were Acts 12 Christians. They called on you, they looked to you, they hoped in you. And even in the face of James being dead, when there was an opportunity for Peter, they were rallied together. They were in prayer, they were believing, they were looking to you again. Lord, there are some here, or some in the Christian life who who will see the dead get raised, and there are some of us who won't. There are some here who are going to be healed. There are some who are not. There are some who are going to marry their childhood sweetheart and finish the race with him or her. And there are some who won't. But there are different scripts in this room. They are, they are, they are as big a contrast as James and Peter. God, give us eyes to see the God of Hebrews 11 in Acts chapter 12. The God who has better in mind. Lord, you did something better with James by letting the sword come into his life. And then you turned around and you did something better with Peter who got released from his circumstances. Lord, would you help us to see you Would you take us behind the screen as you do in Job chapter 1? God, would you let us clue in to the God of glory who's at work in places that easily look like they're good and places that desperately look like they're horrible. And yet, Lord, you are there and you are here this morning. And so, Lord, in this room full of contrast, Lord, particularly for those who are here this morning feeling like I live on James' dead end. That's where I'm at right now. I'm there right now. Lord, would you breathe grace upon their hearts? Would you lift their eyes to see you? Lord, would you do for them what you did for Job as he he began to raise questions and wonder why? Why is my life turned down this path? you drew near to that man and you revealed yourself to him and his questions dried up like a desert and he stopped asking and he said God I had heard of you with the hearing of the ear but now my eye sees and it was enough Lord would you help us today in all these James dead ends Lord help us to hear and receive from you so that the next time we have a chance to pray, Lord, we pray big, we pray bold, we pray earnestly for your kingdom to come, even in the places where we have swung and missed. Because God, you are the God of the better way. And we believe that. And we renew our hope in you today. Lord, we want to be Acts chapter 12 Christians can't always explain the moments where James is dead. 
But yet tomorrow we will believe that Peter can go free. Help us, God. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week. Enjoy VBS.